0: Greetings and welcome. My name is Jill Fleur and I'm an Assistant Project Coordinator at Quality Insights and participate on a team of staff dedicated to promoting and providing CME-eligible opioid education sessions across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania through a partnership with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Quality Insights is excited to offer this podcast to complement the PA Department's Health Education Initiative, evidence-based prescribing tools you can use to fight the opioid epidemic. We have a great topic and conversation lined up today focusing on Pennsylvania's opioid crisis, specifically related to naloxone, the stigma surrounding it, and what we can do to promote the use of it to save lives. With that, I'd like to introduce three guests who are here with me today. First, I'd like to welcome my colleague, Rebecca Dace, who serves as Quality Insights as a Practice Transformation Specialist. In her role as a PTS, she has worked on several different quality improvement initiatives, but her primary focus for the last few years has been on the Pennsylvania Safe Prescribing Project, where she works to promote evidence-based prescribing to clinicians across the state of Pennsylvania. I'd also like to give a warm welcome to one of our clinician champions, Dr. Denise Vanikor Chase. Dr. Vanikor is an associate dean and professor at Eastern University. She's also the director of GDC Healthcare, providing integrated primary care and psychiatric mental health care, including medication assisted treatment for opioid using Suboxone. Dr. Vanacor holds certifications as an adult nurse practitioner, family nurse practitioner, and a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She brings an expertise in many clinical aspects, including the diagnosis and treatment of primary care and mental health disorders, measurement-based care, management, and administration of primary mental health care practices. I'd also like to give a warm welcome to our community champion from Shatterproof, Gabby Granada. Chatterproof's mission is to end the US addiction crisis by addressing stigma and its impacts which manifest in many forms. Gabby is a senior program coordinator at Chatterproof organizing special projects for their national stigma initiative including their pilot program in Pennsylvania to combat addiction stigma in hospital settings. She has a master's in public health from George Washington University and she combines her health policy background and expertise in the substance use field to support those navigating SUD and stigma on the federal, state, and local level. Rebecca, I will hand it over to you to get this conversation started.
1: Wonderful, Jill, and thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. We really just want to highlight the topic today of overdose and naloxone and the benefits that it can bring here in Pennsylvania. In 2021, there have been 5,352 deaths due to overdose. And in 2022, the death number is at 5,044. And these numbers are current as of May 15, 2023. And these numbers still remain preliminary and will continue to go up as information is received or new information is received. In 2021, approximately every two hours, one Pennsylvanian died of an overdose. 70% of these people were male and 56% of these were at home. Most non-fatal drug overdose-related emergency department visits occurred among those that were 25 to 34 and 35 to 44 years old. So with that, Dr. Vanacore, can you just provide a brief introduction to what opioids are?
2: Sure. So opiates are a class of drugs that includes um, synthetic opiates such as fentanyl, which can also be gathered um, off the street, and pain relievers available such as uh, oxycodone, otherwise known as oxycontin, hydrocodone, Vicodin, like codeine, morphine and several others. It is also includes
3: the illegal drug heroin.
1: Wonderful, Dr. Vanacore. Recent data that has been released by the Shapiro administration supports the use and benefits of naloxone here in Pennsylvania. Since 2017, more than 24,000 opioid overdose reversals have been made with naloxone that have been purchased through the state's programs. And as Jill mentioned, today we want to talk about what naloxone is, the stigma surrounding it, and what we can do to promote the use of it and save lives here in Pennsylvania. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it off with a question to Dr. Vanakor and really help us understand, Dr. Vanakor, what does an opioid overdose look like and who can this happen to?
2: So you have to remember that recognizing an opiate overdose can be difficult. If you're not sure, it is always best to treat the situation like an overdose and you could save a life. It's always important to call 911, seek medical care for the individual. Do not leave the person alone. And so let's talk a little bit about the signs of what an overdose might look like. Often we see patients with small constricted, constricted pinpoint pupils. They may have be uh, unable to be aroused, they may be falling asleep, or they actually even may lose consciousness. Um, They also, you might find them with a very slow, shallow, or weak breathing, and in some patients, no breathing, and that is a significant emergency. You might hear them uh, exhibit gurgling sounds or choking sounds. They might be very limp. So if you pick up an arm, uh, they might not even respond to you uh, holding their hand or, or picking up a body limb. Um, You might see very pale, cold, or blue skin or lips or nails,
3: or they might have very cold or clammy skin.
1: So Dr. Vanakore, we talked about naloxone. What role can naloxone play if a patient is having an overdose?
2: So uh, naloxone is a life-saving medication that can reverse um, an overdose from opiates including heroin, fentanyl, prescription opiate medications as well. The key to naloxone is that it must be given in time. Naloxone is super easy to use and really small to carry. It's a really tiny vial. What are the benefits of naloxone? Naloxone quickly reverses an overdose by blocking the effects of opiates It can restore normal breathing within two to three minutes in a person whose breath has slowed or even stopped as a result of an opiate overdose. More than one dose of naloxone may be required, especially when a patient is taking stronger opiates like fentanyl. Naloxone won't harm someone if they're overdosing on drugs other than opiates. So it's always best to use it even if you think someone is overdosing. If you give someone naloxone, you need to stay with them until emergency help arrives or for at least four hours to make sure their breathing returns to normal. I always consider these action steps. Always call 911 immediately, administer the naloxone as soon as possible. Keep the person awake and reminding them to breathe lay the person on their side to prevent any kind of choking, and stay with the person until emergency assistance arrives. Now, who should carry naloxone? If you or someone you know is at increased risk for opiate overdose, especially those struggling with opiate use disorder, you should carry naloxone. Also, keep it at home. People who are taking high-dose opiate medications, greater than 50 morphine milligram equivalents per day prescribed by a doctor, people who use opiates and benzodiazepines together, and people who use illicit opiates like heroin or fentanyl from the street should all carry naloxone because you can't use naloxone on yourself. Let others know that you have it in case you experience an overdose, an opiate overdose. Carrying naloxone is no different than carrying an epinephrine auto-injector, we commonly known as an EpiPen, for someone who has allergies. It simply provides that extra layer of protection for those that are higher risk for opiate overdoses. Back to you, Rebecca.
1: Wonderful, Dr. Vanacore. Just another question. I know sometimes in the news and in social media and things like that, we, we sometimes hear naloxone referred to as Narcan. Can you just briefly touch on what the differences are of those or if there's any difference at all?
2: Sure, absolutely. So naloxone is actually considered the generic name of the medication. That's actually the molecule of the name. Um, Narcan is the brand, a brand of naloxone that was approved by the FDA um, and now is a over-the-counter medication itself. So, um, a lot of times we refer to it as naloxone versus Narcan now.
1: Wonderful, thank you, Dr. Vanacore. So, as we're moving along you know, in Pennsylvania, we've we've heard about stigma and how stigma can impact, you know, treatment for certain things like substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, even the use of naloxone. So Gabby, I'm going to go ahead and bring you in if you don't mind. So what is stigma and are there different types of stigma and really how are these impacting, you know, things across the state or even across the nation? Sure.
3: Thanks, Rebecca. Um, So first to generally define stigma, um, it's a mark or disgrace associated with a particular circumstance, quality, or person. When we're talking about substance use disorders, Shatterproof has identified four different types of stigma that we find crucial um, to affecting uh, people. The first is public stigma. So when we're talking about this, it covers society's negative attitudes towards a group. It can lead to people feeling unwelcome, judged, shamed, or blamed. Um, And a secondary part of this is also stigma towards medications for opioid use disorder um, or other forms of treatment, where we're seeing that things like certain treatment uh, types or MOUD are deemed less accessible than others, um, such as abstinence. There's also structural stigma, which illustrates systems level discrimination in institutional policies or norms. When we're talking about this, maybe thinking about hospital settings or workplace environments or school systems. Lastly, there's self-stigma, where an individual internalizes these other stigmas and tends to think negatively about themselves and their disorder. This is crucial to address because it affects the person's self-efficacy and their self-esteem, both of which are crucial to pursuing recovery. And then in terms of the effects of stigma on people with SUD, there's a lot of layers to this question, but overall, stigma acts as a barrier to receiving health care. It can also be a barrier to engaging in health-seeking behaviors. Uh, and it can lead to discrimination, exclusion, and isolation um, from a provider's perspective as well. Back to you, Rebecca.
1: Thank you. So naloxone is not enough to address the opioid um, overdose crisis here. But even though even though it's safe and proven and effective, a measure to halt opioid overdoses, Dr. Vanekor really went into even though we know how great it is and how it can save lives people are still pushing back against it so gabby how do you think that we can move forward with an appropriate multidisciplinary approach or multi system solution where individual aspects of these solutions you know how are they affected by
3: stigma or
1: rejected in some circles and how can we move forward
3: absolutely so firstly it's important to promote humanity towards people using substances a substance use disorder is exactly that it's a medical disorder and it deserves to be viewed with the same compassion, respect, and care as any other disorder, such as heart disease or diabetes. About one in every seven Americans has a substance use disorder, so it's highly likely that you know someone affected, whether you're aware of it or not. But to properly address substance use, like you said, we need a multidisciplinary and multi-systems approach. So this includes investments from medical providers, law enforcement, our local, state, and federal governments, our schools, our communities, you name it. Um, One pillar of that approach includes harm reduction, and when we're talking about harm reduction, we refer to different practices and policies that are designed to lessen the negative social and physical effects associated with various behaviors, and naloxone is a form of harm reduction. It's an instrument to keep people alive while we simultaneously need to address other components of this epidemic, which include reducing stigma, improving access to quality healthcare and treatment resources as well as reworking legal policies towards substance use and uh, other examples as well.
1: All right. So, Dr. Vanacore, Gabby kind of alluded to, you know, the clinical perspective and her response there. So what can be done from the clinical perspective to really promote naloxone, the use of naloxone and make sure that we are getting it to where it needs to be?
2: So, of course, um, there are four really important steps that we have to look at from a clinical perspective. Um, and the best ways to prevent opiate overdose deaths are to improve opiate prescribing by healthcare providers, reduce patients' exposure to opiates, of course, prevent misuse. And it's important to make sure that opiate use disorder is adequately treated. Finally, It's important that patients who are on opiates, whether they're taking them um, recreationally or for medical problems, and family members and friends of that individual have access to naloxone. Providing opiate-specific treatment and recovery support services to individuals with opiate use disorder is really important. And of course, increasing the accessibility to treatment and recovery support system helps reduce the use of both prescribed and recreational opiate use. But having that naloxone at hand can save lives if a patient does develop an an overdose.
1: Thank you. And I know we talked about this briefly at the very beginning, but Dr. Vanakore, who is at risk for an overdose? I know Gabby just mentioned one in seven Americans suffer from substance use disorder and that we all probably know someone. So again, who is at risk for an overdose?
2: So we have to remember that you know prescription opiates such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine, fentanyl, among others are very powerful medications that have pain reducing benefits, but may lead to misuse, addiction, overdose, and even death, various, uh, factors affect the, an individual's risk of misuse, addiction, or overdose while taking opiates. Some of these factors include a higher dose opiate. So a patient who might be taking a higher dose, greater than 50 to a hundred morphine milligram equivalents per day, um, prolonged duration, uh, people who are using them longer than intended. We have to remember that as many as one in four people receiving prescription opiates long-term in a primary care setting struggles with addiction. That's a lot of individuals. Also, patients who are taking extended release or long-acting formulations are at a much greater risk of overdose and death associated with opiate use. In addition, we have to think about polysubstance use. And this is important because um, the concomitant use of other medications, specifically benzodiazepines like Xanax, Ativan, as well as any other sedating medications or even alcohol can cause uh, an overdose. In addition, other medications that a patient might be taking, including muscle relaxants or medications to assist with sleep can also cause or be part of the possibility of an overdose. One of the other important things to remember is that patients who have completed completed an an opiate use disorder treatment program, they've actually gone through treatment, they're off opiates, they've then returned to an opiate naive state. And if they are reintroduced to opiates, even at a small dose, this can precipitate an overdose as well. And finally, we have to look at what we call counterfeit and street drugs. Many of our uh, street drugs or uh, recreational type type drugs um, are counterfeit at this point, and they're being cut with Um, different types of synthetic opiates that can be of higher uh, power than patients are used to taking. So all of these factors play a significant role in the possibility of someone's overdose risk. Back to you, Rebecca.
1: Wonderful, Dr. Vandekor. So would you say a lot of the overdoses that we're seeing now, are they a result of prescription opioids or the counterfeit medications or even street drugs that you were just talking about? And really, how has this evolved in in recent years? I know we've been hearing a lot of different things about fentanyl and overdoses and things like that. So again, how has this changed over the recent years?
2: So um, up until about 2020, 2021, Um, I think we probably had overdoses that were both from um, prescribed opiates as well as um, over-the-counter or counterfeit medications. For 2022, data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggest really an avalanche of overdose deaths that were largely driven by the spread of illicit fentanyl, and this crested in about March of 2022. Street drugs in America got even more toxic in 2022 with the spread of the synthetic opiate fentanyl. Many of those who are dying um, are under the age of 40, um, and they're dying because those um, over the over the uh, street drugs are kind of a combination of maybe heroin and fentanyl, or maybe oxycodone and fentanyl, and the the level, the amount of each is quite unknown. Uh, the DEA reported that in December, it seized far greater quantities of illicit fentanyl than ever before in 2022. So 2022 brought a large amount of overdose deaths um, in part because of, of the drug fentanyl. And you can see this on some of the CDC Uh, data slides that talk about the amount of synthetic opiates that are causing overdose deaths. However, in 2022, we had some major reforms in addiction treatment. So for decades, recovery treatment has been shaped by drug war policies that tended to be more punitive, bureaucratic, and so confusing for many doctors and healthcare providers. They really didn't want to treat people with opiate use disorder. As a result, studies have shown that roughly 90% of people with addiction might get no healthcare at all. So driven in part by the carnage of these fentanyl overdose deaths, Congress and the Biden administration pushed through major reforms to the way people get uh, addiction treatment now in healthcare. So I'll turn this back to you. Dr. Vanacore.
1: thank you for that great breakdown. Now, one question for you could be answered simply with yes or no. Does naloxone help in those kinds of overdoses?
2: Absolutely. Naloxone have, helps in any opiate overdose.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. So as Dr. Vanacore was talking about that and you know, really highlighting some statistics, some of the statistics right here in Pennsylvania, as I mentioned at the very beginning, 5,352 people. Um, again, preliminary number have been have died of drug overdoses here in Pennsylvania, and some of the data that we're seeing for that to those opioid or to those overdose deaths eighty five percent of them did contain an opioid, and uh seventy eight point one percent actually contained fentanyl so as we're talking about those high numbers here in Pennsylvania, you know it's really important again to make sure people have the tools that they need to hopefully stable life. So Gabby, we've talked about naloxone and we, we talked about stigma. So again, how can we break down these barriers or reduce that stigma surrounding naloxone in a way that gets people the assistance that they need?
3: Sure. Thanks, Rebecca. So generally we can educate on what naloxone is, how it's used, and why it is a crucial component to combating an opioid overdose, just like we're doing today. As I mentioned earlier, this needs to happen on multiple levels, including healthcare, law enforcement, and communities. We also need to humanize those who are impacted by substance use disorder. Uh, So that includes people who have a substance use disorder to prevent from exclusion and stigma, while also offering support to those who are part of the solution. So here we're talking about providers, officers, and teachers. We not only want to be providing education and resources, but also ensuring that there's emotional support available for them as well. When we talk about reducing stigma, it's important we frame naloxone as not only an important tool in our toolbox to protect our communities, but when we look at the number of overdoses and deaths we're currently seeing, naloxone is now an essential part of a first aid response, so we really want to make sure that people are aware of that. And then we also need to identify um, or better identify how we can share this information and distribute naloxone. So for example, we know that a majority of overdoses reversed by lay people. So when we say lay people, we mean non-medical providers, so not EMS, um, or maybe someone at a hospital. Um, Those are reversed by people who also use drugs. There are overdoses that may not even be reported or recorded due to stigma. Um, So we need to ensure that when we break down stigma for these communities, we're prioritizing a naloxone access strategy that um, that prioritizes them. So it's not a blanketed approach or just distributing to anyone who's willing to take it. Where can people access Naloxone? Where can they get it? Absolutely. So this is gonna look a little bit different depending on um, a person's community. It looks different everywhere, Um, but generally Naloxone can be accessed at pharmacies and by mail. Many areas may also provide it through libraries or schools or other community resources in Pennsylvania through a partnership with the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency and Next Distro, anyone can get naloxone mailed to their home for free, which is really great. The Next Distro website, which is nextdistro.org, is also a great tool and it outlines local policies and locations where you can access many different SUD resources including the lock So I'd recommend checking that out. And while there are some additional barriers to to receiving naloxone from a medical provider, like you might need established care or the cost associated with that, the Department of Health has signed a standing order prescription for naloxone. So you don't need a prescription to access it from your healthcare provider, which does help. And then we also do just want to remind folks that through the Good Samaritan provisions of Act 139, members of the community, family members, friends, bystanders, all of these groups can lawfully administer naloxone to someone who's experiencing an overdose. This provision provides immunity from prosecution for those who respond to an overdose by administering naloxone or calling 911. So you can't be implicated um, or get in trouble for doing that. We really want to prioritize that we are able to provide care to the people who need it. But Rebecca, back to you.
1: Wonderful, Gabby, and and again, thank you for being here. Thank you to Dr. Vanacore. We've covered a lot of information in a short amount of time. So, Dr. Vanacore, I'll start with you. If you were to identify three key takeaways from you know this podcast today, or or maybe not even three, but just some big key takeaways, what would you like people to take away from today's podcast session?
2: I think most first and most important thing is an overdose can happen to anyone, and an overdose can put someone at at certain risk for death. And again, if we wanna avoid anything, we wanna avoid the death of an overdose. So whatever we can do to improve that is important. I think the other piece is naloxone we know can save lives. Naloxone is so easy to carry with you, Um, Again, you can carry it if you're taking opiates, Uh, you can have your friends and family carry it with you if you're out and about and you know you're taking opiates. Um, Again, naloxone does save lives and we know it does. Um, I think of it as an EpiPen uh, for opiates uh, as an EpiPen would be for allergies. Back to you, Rebecca.
1: All right, Gabby, same question to you. You know, what do we want the key takeaways to be, especially for you talking about stigma? What should people learn from today's session?
3: Absolutely. I think in addition to echoing everything Dr. Vandekor just said, highlighting how big of an impact stigma has on people either being able to access care or access naloxone um, or even enter recovery if that's something that they choose to do, um, showing humanity and respect to people regardless of um, their walk of life or their connection to substances is extremely important in combating substance use disorder.
1: Wonderful. And again, thank you both for joining me today and thank you everyone else who uh, decides to listen into this podcast, you know, surrounding naloxone and stigma and, and really what we can do to help save lives here in Pennsylvania. But with that, Jill, I will turn it back over to you for any closing comments that you may have.
0: Well, thank you, Rebecca, Dr. and Gabby, for joining us today and sharing these great perspectives. The education team at Quality Insights is readily available to answer any questions you may have related to any of the topics we've discussed today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at pdmpeducation at It's also listed on the screen, or you can also, um, if you're tech savvy, do the QR code as well. As I mentioned at the start of today's show, Quality Insights, in partnership with the Pennsylvania Department of Health, provides virtual and on-site education presentations for an array of modules and topics to schedule that fits your needs. We invite you to contact us directly if you'd like to talk about ways we can partner to offer these presentations. Thank you for your dedication to providing quality care, and we hope to see you again.